Sometimes in life, skepticism can serve you well. It can save you money, keep you from wasting a day at a timeshare presentation, and help you avoid spreading gossip. To be honest, when I am faced with a new scenario, I usually tend to be a skeptic until something proves me wrong. And if you're like me, you can probably spot a too-good-to-be-true health hack from a mile away and read labels like it's your job. That's where ritual comes in. They know that every good skeptic deserves a multivitamin that exceeds your standards. Their clinically backed Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin has high quality, traceable key ingredients in clean bioavailable forms. Take two delayed release capsules per day that optimize your body's absorption and you'll get nine key nutrients. Rituals Essential for Women is USP verified, so you know you can trust what you're putting in your body. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark, which shows the product contains the ingredients actually listed on the label. On top of that, Ritual multivitamins are vegan, non-GMO project verified, gluten and major allergen free, certified B Corp and made traceable. I take my vitamins every morning with breakfast. It's part of my daily ritual and I feel so good doing it. No more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash yoga girl. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash yoga girl for 25% off. Welcome to the Yoga Girl podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in with me today. I have a very special podcast episode in store for you this week. With everything that's happening in the world right now, you know, with the hugely important momentum and long overdue momentum that we're seeing around the Black Lives Matter movement, with uprisings happening all across the United States and protests and marches globally, I really want to dedicate space and time to talk about this this week. Now, if it's something that I've learned, it's that what we don't need right now is another white person speaking about their perspective and their feelings. So this week, I have decided to give the space of this podcast to three hugely important voices from the Black community. Today, you're going to be hearing from Diane Bondi, from Rocky Huron, and from Maite Onochie. They are three people in my life, three people from the black community who you might know already. They are all teachers on yogagirl.com. You might have taken their classes. You might have seen their faces or heard their names before. Chances are also they might be totally new to you. And I feel really honored and so grateful that they have taken the time out of their day to share with us and to speak with us today. For this episode, I haven't, we haven't given any kind of direction and I really just wanted to open up the space for them to share what this experience is like right now. No matter how hard we try, we can never in a million years as white people put ourselves in their shoes or understand what this is like to experience this every day and what it is like to move through these days with this movement and, and so many things changing and expanding and also coming to an edge right now. So what you're going to hear is some storytelling. They are three people from different parts of the world, of course, with different backgrounds and completely different perspectives as well. And this is a very, very, very valuable moment in time that we're in right now. We have the ability to be of service. We have a responsibility to be of service, to unpack and dismantle the systematic racism that we have inside of us. 
the privileges that we sit with as white people and the system that we benefit from, whether or not we want to, but that we do benefit from every single day. And the best way to, to educate ourselves, the best way to learn and unlearn is to listen when black people speak. And that's what this podcast episode really is all about. And I want you to listen deeply, to listen from that space deep within your heart where you can give all of your presence right now. So don't let this podcast be something that plays in the background while you're busy doing something else. Let this be part of your practice today. Let this be part of the work that you're doing today. Listening from your heart, not from your ego, not from your mind. Because this is truly a hugely important part of, of doing this work. Of course, we need to support and donate and be present at, at these marches right now. But listening is something that we need to do every single day. And sharing this podcast space today feels like such a small thing to do. And it also feels so important. So I don't want to take up any more of, 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 of our time right now. A little note, we have one ad in this podcast. These ads are decided and confirmed weeks in advance. And I'll be donating all the revenues from this podcast this week to the Black Lives Matter movement. So without further ado, let's go ahead and take a deep breath, all of us together. Open the mouth, let it out. And now we listen. Our first guest host for this week's show is Diane Bondi. You can follow her on Instagram at Diane Bondi Yoga Official or go to her website, dianebondi.com. Hi, I'm Diane Bondi. I'm an accessible, I like to think progressive yoga for all yoga teacher. What does that mean? I believe in diversity, inclusivity, and accessibility on the mat. So I'm all about equity in yoga practices and how that shows up in the larger context of the world, extending our yoga beyond our mats that we all feel included. Uh, how am I feeling right now? Anxious, I would say. Confused, tired, overwhelmed, and hopeful. So I was invited uh, to come on this podcast by Rachel. Rachel, as you know, is, you know, the, the founder, the creator, the visionary behind Yoga Girl. And I've had, you know, content on the Yoga Girl platform for a while now, probably for about three years. And uh, she asked me to come and speak to, you know, what my feelings are, what my perspective is on the world today and what's going on in the world today. So for full disclosure, I am not. African-American. I am a Canadian and I live very close to America. So I, I live on the border of, Can I live on the border of America, right in Canada, in a town called Windsor, uh, you know, more specifically in Essex County. So I have an interesting kind of perspective on what is happening in the world today. And what I'd like to say, speaking as a Canadian to what I'm seeing in the America from my perspective, anti-Black sentiment is a global problem. What we're seeing in America is based on 400 years of oppression. So what we like to say is that not all police officers are bad and not all police officers are bad. There's lots of great people out there doing wonderful work in the community. But we're not really talking about individual officers. We're talking about a culture of policing 
that has its histories and roots. If anybody is a history buff here, I took a history degree in university. If anybody is looking at their history, what the history of policing is and what policing has come to signify in the bigger context for people of color is keeping people in place and upholding the tenets of white supremacy. And that happens anywhere where colonization happened, where we had settlers come from Europe. So Europe has run around the world and created colonies and settled certain places in the world. And from those places, it has extracted wealth and money to make the UK what it is today. And in order for that to happen, oppression had to happen. We had to enslave people. We had to steal land. Canada is no different. Had to steal land from people in order to create this system of capitalism, which is based in white supremacy. So what you are seeing in the world today with people like George Lloyd and Ahmaud Aubrey and Breonna Taylor and Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown and, 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 is a system of white supremacy that has been in place for 401 plus years. So it's not a few bad actors, it's a system of oppression and it's a historical perspective that is as American as apple pie protesting and what else is American? Baseball, okay? These are things that have been going on forever. So we reached a tipping point with George Floyd, right? We all are home sheltered in place due to COVID. And I think we've had time in our hands to reflect on who we are. And we're consuming a lot of media, social media in particular. And for the first time in a long time, perhaps we've had time to process what we're seeing. And we watched a black man die for a counterfeit $20 bill, right? That was a death sentence. We've seen a black man die um, a couple of weeks ago for taking a jog in a neighborhood where there may or may not have been burglaries. So the jury's out on the information that was used in order to kill this young man. And as a mother to a 15-year-old and 13-year-old sons who are walking through the world as black young men, I worry. I'm very confused by people reaching out to me that I haven't heard from in a very long time, asking me how I am and how I'm doing in this current time. I'm anxious, I'm confused, I'm sad, and I'm worried. I'm worried about my son, and I'm worried that this is a trend that we're all jumping on. This is a bandwagon that we're all jumping on, and that no real change is actually going to happen. This is my fear. I will be interested to see if real change will happen three weeks from now, three months from now, six months from now, when the heat of the moment has dissipated and we've all gone back to perhaps the mundaneness of our lives. We've all been allowed to leave our houses and we're no longer sheltering in place. Will we just fall back into old patterns? Because I think through COVID, the world will be forever changed right? We're no longer going to move with the freedom that we once had. We will no longer be sheltered in place and perhaps forced to constantly look at media and the things around us and then have these visceral reactions. Because every state in America, all 50 states had 
a protest. And I'm quite proud here in Canada, we also have had a protest. We had a protest in Windsor and in Toronto and in Calgary and in Vancouver. Because as Black Canadians, we suffer from the same tenets of white supremacy that Black Americans do. While Black Americans are centered in the conversation around white supremacy and racism, which is completely okay, which is all right, because it shines a broader light on what is going on in the world. These same systems are in place here in Canada and in Australia and in the UK. So this is a global problem of anti-Black sentiment. It happens in all cultures. There are South Asian people who don't like Black people. There are Asian, the Asian culture who has sentiment around Black people. Like it seems to me that Black people are low on the totem pole around racial discrimination. And I'm not really sure why. I don't know what we did collectively as a culture to elicit all this distrust and hate from all these different cultures. There's even anti-Black sentiment, sentiment on the continent in Africa. There's even people out there lightening their skin because they don't want to be Black. And it's, it's exhausting. Like, I'm not really sure why this is a thing. Why, as a people, when we were in, in countries in Africa, and if your ancestry, as mine does, has a back ground in enslavement, we were on the west coast of Africa living our lives, doing our thing until we were snatched up, put on boats and either shipped to the West Indies where my family ended up or shipped to the southern United States where other members of my family ended up and then forced to endure 400 years of being told that we aren't worth anything that our contributions to this life aren't worth anything, that our skin care, our skin color and our hair texture are wrong, that we're not as smart as white people, that we don't deserve the same justice as white people, and that our lives do not matter as much as white folks. They only mattered when we were enslaved people and we were property. That's when our lives mattered most because we were property. And when we stopped being property, our lives cease to matter as much. And I'm not really sure why there's an anti-Black sentiment around the world. I don't understand that. I don't know why. And I'm saddened by it because quite frankly, the world is more diverse. There are more people of color populating the world than there are non-people of color. So in the worldview, we are actually the majority and not the minority, only in North America do we see or other places that are potentially colonized by Europe that we see that we are the minority and we don't matter as much. So what can we do to confront anti-Black sentiment, to confront anti-Black racism? What do we have to do? And I get that question every day in my DMs and in my emails and people ask me all the time, what can I do to be a good ally? First things first is to do your own work. Don't ask me what I, what I think you should do to become a good ally. I need you to do the work for yourself to figure out how it is that you want to show up for communities that are underestimated, that are under-resourced, that are under-represented, uh, and are constantly in the line of fire when it comes to racism, discrimination, and police brutality. What can you do, right? What can you do in your own circles, in your own families? When you meet in family gatherings and you have people who are making 
racist comments and you don't say anything because you don't want to rock the boat or they're old and you know grandma's always been like that she doesn't mean anything by it that that is where you start you look at your own attachment to race you look at your own values around race you look at your own values around humanity and ask yourself how is it i want to show up in the world and how is it that i want to end what's going on in the world and how do i do that in my own home how do i do that from my own perspective and instead of reaching out to people of color to ask them and primarily usually black women to ask them how can i help why not google it why not go online and look, how can I be a good ally to black people in Google? Because I'm going to tell you lots of resources are gonna come up. And when I say my life matters, black lives matter, we're not saying that black lives matter more, we're saying that black lives matter too. And I don't know why saying that creates such anxiety why people don't want to post that on their social media when they'll say to me I'm not racist I never use the n-word I don't do these things but when I ask them to post Black Lives Matter on their social media pages they can't right ask yourself when I say Black Lives Matter why is that so problematic for me when we had the women's march a few years ago all these women went down to Washington and marched it was the women's movement march and nobody showed up with signs going, what about men's lives, right? At this march. Or I went for a run for breast cancer a few years ago. And when I was running the charity one for breast cancer, no protesters showed up and said, well, what about pancreatic cancer? Or what about brain cancer? Everybody knew that we were there for the cause of breast cancer and nobody pushed back against that. So why is it when I say my life matters, black lives matter, my son's lives matter, that I get the retort, all lives matter. If all lives mattered, then black lives would matter, right? If all lives matter, then those four police officers would have been arrested immediately after George Floyd lost his life, begging on the ground for his mother. If all lives matter, Brianna Taylor's killers who broke into her house and shot her while she was sleeping would have been arrested because to this day they have not been. And it was the police at that. They had the wrong house in the wrong neighborhood and they shot a woman sleep, a paramedic sleeping in their bed and nobody has been arrested. So if all lives mattered, then there would be justice for these people, right? I'm just asking. I just want to know. Why is this so hard? And right now it seems very trendy to buy into diversity and very trendy to want to be included in this diverse conversation without actually doing the real work around what it is you believe and why it is you've been silent and why it is saying Black Lives Matter is such a problem for you. What do you believe about Black people? Because it seems to me for most of our existence, if not all of our existence, we've, our only function has been to prove to you why our humanity matters. And because we've hit a tipping point now, everybody's interested in, in looking at that. Let's not have this be a trend. 
Let's actually have this be a shifting consciousness. So for those of you out there who are spiritual teachers or educators or yoga teachers, it is our dharma, our noble purpose to shape and shift consciousness. And that can only happen when you look at your own. You can only be an ally. You can only dismantle your privilege. You can only be an effective ally if you look at yourself and shift your consciousness first. The seat of the teacher is a powerful place to be. So what are you going to do with that power? How are you going to leverage your privilege to make the world be for all of us instead of just for some of us? And when, as an exhausted Black person, can I say, my life matters without pushback? When can I stop worrying about my sons in the world being killed because they've been mistaken for somebody else? Or they were asserting their freedom and that intimidated or scared somebody. So that meant they had to lose their lives. It's a larger question and it's not a trend. And I hope above all hope that this new hyper-focus and tipping point on racial injustice in the world as a global problem is going to continue and evolve so that one day we can all feel free, right? So instead of asking me what you can do, figure out what it is that you want to do. How do you want to show up on the larger stage for everybody to feel safe and included? Because after all, as much as we, it doesn't feel like it, we all are in this together. Diversity happens for all of us. And we have to look out for each other. Uh, if you're interested in learning about accessible yoga, Yoga for All of Us, you can check out my book, Yoga for Everyone. Uh, and you can get that anywhere. You can get it anywhere fine books are sold or on Amazon. And you can check me out on dianebondyyoga.com for any online courses that I might be teaching or online workshops that you might be interested in. Do scents evoke memories and transport you back to being on the beach during your favorite vacation? I know they do for me. Osea's Andaria Algae Body Oil smells like summer or the beach in Aruba, bottled with all natural uplifting notes of mango, mandarin, grapefruit, lime, and cypress. But it's not just about the elevated scent. This body oil is clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and deeply moisturize, leaving skin silky and soft. It delivers that coveted post-vacation glow, like you just returned from a tropical getaway. And right now, you can get 10% off your first order with our code YOGA at oseamalibu.com. I love Osea's Andaria Algae Body Oil. I use it every single day and I have for so many years. It makes me feel silky smooth and just glowing. This body oil is rich but never greasy and clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity. It visibly firms your skin, leaving you more sculpted and toned. No wonder I feel so great after using it. But it gets even better. With Osea, you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Osea's products are clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified. They are a women-founded company that has been making seaweed-infused skincare for over 28 years. So bring on summer. 
Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean vegan skin and body care at Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code YOGA at OseaMalibu.com. You'll get free samples with every order and free shipping on orders over $60. Head to OseaMalibu.com and use the code YOGA for 10% off. Now we're going to be hearing from Rocky Huron. You can follow him on Instagram at Rocky Huron. Hi, my name is Rocky. I am grateful and honored for the opportunity to get to share in this way. It's an interesting time, even before everything that's unfolded in the last few weeks, to be sharing with the world in this way. Uh, in, in many ways, I feel quite alone and isolated. Quite literally, I am, I am alone at the moment. So the knowledge that, that what I speak while alone and somewhat isolated in my home at the moment is uh, is being broadcast to many, many people. It's overwhelming, truthfully, but it's also exciting and terrifying and uh, fulfilling. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to share and to speak what's on my mind and what's on my heart. A bit about me, uh, it's possible if, if you practice with the Yoga Girl online that you have come across my classes and uh, I am a yoga teacher, taught yoga for the last 14 years. If you've taken my classes, you'll also notice that I am a man of color, <laughs> rather tall man of color. I'm also a musician and a performer and very much a human being, very much an empath <laughs> and, you know, a voyager on a quest to continually educate myself and share what I learn to those that are interested in learning from me. As a yoga teacher, the people that tend to be interested in learning from me seem to share some of those aspects in, in common with me, uh, save for the the being a person, a male person of color aspect. I don't uh, historically have a lot of students that are black men. I'm also a gay man, so black gay man is is not often a demographic that I get the chance to speak to. But for that reason, I, I feel that it is important for me to, to share and speak to the people that do look to me to understand, understand more of, of whatever it is that you want, you are wanting to understand more of, whether that's, you know, the anatomy of, of your knee <laughs> or how to properly execute a, a particular pose, the, the subtler dimensions of self, or in the case of what's going on right now, what it means to be a black man in America, and perhaps what you can do from, from wherever you you from wherever you are currently in the world and whoever you are to help in the effort to uh, enable equality and equal access, opportunity and liberties to all people, specifically in this instance, people of color. So. As a teacher, as a leader in my various communities, it has been a very swift and steep learning curve over the last few months to learn how to adapt the context of, of what I do teach to meet the moment and to speak to you know, deeper dimensions of myself that perhaps my teaching has not previously called upon me to share. So a little bit about me, and, and I'm happy to share kind of what I'm going through before I, I, I launch into any any type of 
action steps or encouragement or educational uh, elements. Um, and perhaps understanding a bit more about me uh, can provide context uh, surrounding the action steps I might encourage. I am a, a person of color. I also am a mixed race person. So I am, I'm, my dad is black, he's from Jamaica. Upon further research of my ancestry in the last several years, uh, I understand now that he is primarily of Nigerian descent and um, Ghanaian. So I am about a quarter Nigerian uh, and Ghanaian from Ghana. And my mom is white. She is mostly Scandinavian and British. So I am I'm very much mixed race individual, half white, half black. And I was raised predominantly by my mother and the white side of my family. And I was raised primarily in a white town. <laughs> I was born in the Bay Area and grew up in a pretty, pretty mixed cultural culturally mixed uh, neighborhood in the Bay Area, Alameda, had many black friends, white friends, Filipino friends, Asian friends, which all felt very normal to me. And when I, when I was nine years old, my mom decided to move to be closer to her family, um, my extended family, uh, to the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains in California. So I, I moved to a pretty small, uh, somewhat conservative, uh, predominantly white town when I was nine years old grateful to be from there. I'm grateful for the upbringing I had. Uh, in many ways, I had a very privileged upbringing. I definitely experienced a, a significant amount of racial bias and ignorance, I still do to this day, but never, never any overt examples of racism that I encountered in my life that I can remember. My mom certainly did, uh, coming home from the hospital with a little brown boy as a white woman a lot of the, you know, a lot of the hardships she encountered, truthfully, were not not only from from white people, but also from black people that didn't quite love so much the fact that she had a little brown boy. So, you know, the context of my life is is very much a part of the story of race and racial relations and progress and and the lack thereof in in America. I wouldn't be who I am. I wouldn't be here were it not for many, many of the forces that were at, at play, uh, obviously preceding my, my birth. So, you know, my experience as a black man in America has been very unique. And in many ways, I, I am able to see things from many sides as a white person, I understand guilt. I understand privilege, you know, part of the reason why a lot of my, uh, my struggles do not directly correlate to my blackness, or at least I didn't see it that way until more recently, is because I was raised by white people. And because I am able to communicate clearly and effectively with white people, most of my students, most of the people that are in my community are white women. I was raised by a white woman. I know how to speak to the white women of the world, I think. And and I understand white culture because it was the culture that, that raised me. I also understand, I do understand racism as a black man because while I maybe have not experienced overt forms of racism, 
I do know what it's like to be viewed as a black man in America. My white brothers and sisters see me primarily as black and my black brothers and sisters perhaps see me as, as, as black, but, but also they see my whiteness. In many instances, the, the, the ways in which racism has not touched me is because of my whiteness and not because of my blackness. And so, you know, as a, as a gay man, I understand also prejudice and bigotry and, and bias and, and bullying, but I also understand how all of those struggles are uniquely different. So I'm, I'm a blended being and I've struggled a lot of my life with trying to understand where I belong and where I fit in, in the spectrum of, of color in America. Um, and identity in America. When I left home at 17, I moved to Los Angeles and, and throughout my adult life, I have, for one reason or another, sort of always gravitated towards living in neighborhoods that are predominantly occupied by people of color. And I, I don't, I don't know exactly why that is, but I, I have connected more deeply with my culture in my adult life because, because I've, I've had to, you know, I lived in South Central LA for several years. I lived in Harlem, uh, New York for a time. I currently live in Westlake, which is largely populated by the Latino community. Um, and I think I, I never quite understood my blackness in America uh, until living amongst other people of color and connecting with the culture and, and and also understanding how, even though culturally it was not a part of my upbringing, in a way its absence was. My father is an immigrant from Jamaica and he grew up in a, a political system that functioned very similarly to our own and a history in his country that likewise to the history of America is one that's riddled with the exploitation of human energy for the purpose of capital gain. As a result, his education was very poor. His, his skills and, and access to opportunity was, were very low. He was a musician, incredible musician, and he moved to America in pursuit of the American dream. But you know, because of his lack of, of education, access, and opportunity, he struggled financially his whole life. And, and and as a result, was not able to be a contributing factor in, in, in my life. I, I grew up you know, seeing him from time to time, um, had a relationship with him and a relationship with his absence. But you know, a lot of that relationship was informed by the means of coping with systemic racism that he had developed, uh, primarily drug use, alcohol abuse, and his resulting uh, treatment towards me. So my connection to the black side of my, my identity was via him. And in many ways, the pain that I've experienced is the pain that has been passed down or inflicted uh, due to both his presence and his absence, which is very much connected to, to his blackness. It's only been in the the last few few weeks 
I think that I've been able to understand that the rage, the anger that I feel towards other people, towards myself, towards towards my country, when I feel it, you know, it's not, it doesn't pervade my life, but that that isn't some mysterious force that I have to deal with. It is a byproduct of the almost mathematical equation of systemic racism, wealth and income inequality, and, and human exploitation that riddles our country's history and can't help but touch every person that that is a part of our country on, on either side. I say that I'm privileged because of my whiteness, because I can pass as white. I'll never forget being in fourth grade and a, one of my friends, this is after I transferred schools to, to the country, you know, to, to this primarily white town. And I, I had a hard time fitting in, in school. I, you know, I was the black kid in my town you know, which tells you a lot about my town if I'm half black. Um, but I was kind of the black kid in town. And, but that wasn't a, a point that I made, that I made to people. It was just, I assumed it was, it was understood. And one of my friends in fourth grade, uh, like we had, we had hung out for months at this point. We had met each other and, and were playing you know, together after school almost every day. And like six, seven months of knowing each other, I mentioned that I was black and he was shocked because he'd never met a black person before. And I asked him, what did you think I was, if not black? And he, he said that he assumed I just had a really great tan and a perm. And <laughs> said, do you know any other fourth grade boys with a perm? <laughs> uh, my mom gets a perm, but that, that don't go with her. You know, so th that obviously was not a, an example of racism, but it showed his racial ignorance. And it, it, it was the first time that I kind of occurred to me that, that people were going to have a hard time understanding who I am or what I am. And, you know, as you are coming into your own identity and, and seeking to develop a sense of who you are, it can be difficult to source that from within. It's very much something that, that develops in response to how people see you, how people view you and what people, how people expect you to be. In many ways, I feel that people expect me to be, uh, you know, the, the things that I've perhaps endeavored to show them that I am, which is sensitive and compassionate and eloquent and understanding and patient and um, helpful and strong, all qualities that I seek to embody. But I know that people don't often expect me to be angry and um, terse and broken and, and rageful at times. Um, and these are also qualities that I, that I have in me as sort of a buildup of so much of what I've experienced both personally and, and just empathically towards people that, towards, towards my brothers and sisters, towards people. Being mixed race, every, we are all each other's brothers and sisters. And what happens to any one of us hap is happening to us. It's the nature of empathy is to understand someone else's suffering, not to fix it, not to, uh, go speak to the manager about it, not to try to make it better so it doesn't feel so bad when you look at it, but to really sit with it and really feel it. And it, is, it has always been easy for me to, to feel another person's pain. And 
and to understand it when I have enough information with which to do so. And the history of our country um, as it relates to exploitation, to slave labor, to racial inequality, to greed is on public record. There is there there ought to be no mystery as to why what's happening right now is happening. And so I even do push back a bit about the notion that I am somehow charged with the task of now educating people when no one taught me. You know, the history books didn't teach me about my blackness and the struggle of of my people and the mistreatment of my people. I learned about slavery, but I I was not in a sense, I was taught that it ended back in the 1800s when the truth is it hasn't. Our country still operates on the, the exploitation of, of human labor. You know, our, our criminal justice system, our treatment of the working class people of our country, the, the consistent, abhorrent funding of programs that would actually help to raise the quality of life to the people of our country is a consistent um, failure. And so what's happening right now uh, all makes good sense to me as a sort of mathematical equation. One plus one plus one equals three. <laughs> and while I'm, I'm grateful to, I'm grateful to see people taking to the streets um, because that certainly beats the alternative. When you witness a modern day lynching and you, and you don't feel anything about that, or you just feel like that's normal, um, that would be terrifying to me. And we have, we have had that response over and over and over again. So to anyone that feels surprised in any way or feels like racism is something that's only just flared up under the current administration, certainly you know, they have fanned the flames, but let's not forget that the Black Lives Matter movement started under a black president with a black attorney general. And that, that even with the appearance of, of black faces in high places, as Dr. Cornell West says, the underlying issues that contribute to the mechanism of racism in our country were not solved um, by putting every color of the rainbow in the in the in the roles of leadership. You know, these are deep issues that our country has never properly atoned for. If I have any action uh, items or suggestions for anybody listening, um, they yes, they they would center around taking action. But what I want to first say is, is that in order to properly take action to solve a problem, you have to be willing to understand what the problem is. I don't think that it is black people's responsibility to teach anybody what the problem is. The problem is our problem. It's a shared problem because it was not created by black people. We are a part of the story. We can tell you what it's felt like. We can tell you what our grievances are. We can tell you what our pain is. I can tell you what my pain is, um, which is connected to my blackness, but it's different. I can tell you what the quality of life I would like to experience and what I'd like for my brothers and sisters to experience is. Um, 
but I don't think that I need to explain to anybody what the problem is because the problem, the problem is obvious. And if I understand what the problem is, it's not because I'm black. It's because I've, I've paid attention and I've educated myself. So I encourage everyone to really take a look at the, the history of our country and the things that we perhaps deem as normal or we accept as, as the way things are, are only that way because that's, they've gone unchecked for a very long time. When I say that, that what's happening right now in, in, in the streets and, and what's going on around me, around us, makes good sense to me, it's not to say that I, I, I support it and I love every aspect of what I see, but it's a natural consequence. We live in a world of karma. Karma suggests that we live in a world of consequences that causes produce effects. And when, you know, I don't know how many listeners are, are, are in America, but I will suggest that, that we are, you know, we're experiencing first time in my, in my lifetime that I, that I'm living through this, that I'm experiencing it, but we're going through a great depression in our country economically. And in the midst of a great depression, any effort to provide a universal basic income to citizens has been thwarted. We're also living at a time where we're seeing the, the emergence of the world's first trillionaire, <laughs> like as we go through a great depression. We've also just gone through many, many, many years, decades, but certainly most recently of, of hearing political hopefuls share that they would like to see or are willing to fight to see um, the increase of social welfare programs in America that can provide things like healthcare and equal access to education and you know universal basic living wages to American citizens or you know whatever that looks like and to be told over and over and over again that we just cannot afford that which is a myth we live in an abundant universe an abundant planet and an abundant economy that benefits certain people provided that the majority of people believe that there is a shortage of resources available to them we're also living through a pandemic and in the midst of a pandemic being told that not only are many people going to be out of a job and therefore out of health care, but that any aid provided by the government is going to primarily be up-leveled to benefit the wealthiest among us, the corporations and stock markets. So to be experiencing a Great Depression and to be experiencing a, a, a pandemic, and I don't mean to be negative, but just to state the facts, the consequences, the, 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 the factors in this equation to be going through all that and then to be told that we don't we're not granted access to health care or universal basic income to subsidize and assist us through this time and then to witness a modern day lynching it's it's a perfect storm to produce massive levels of civil unrest and so the questions to be asking right now, I think it's important to demand 
more of our leadership, but also to recognize that our system, unfortunately, seems to lack the capacity to reform itself. So new leadership needs to emerge. Um, we have, unfortunately, neo-fascist leadership currently in place that don't, doesn't seem to care much for the well-being of the people. And an entire sort of neoliberal wing of our Democratic Party that wants to solve this by just putting more black faces in front of us <laughs> the, to create the illusion of progress. So what we have to demand is the democratic sharing of resource to the people in our country. And nothing less than that can suffice. If you are wanting to help black people, do so by more deeply listening to and understanding their pain and being willing to be uncomfortable for a while. Black people have been uncomfortable for hundreds of years. And you know, to really empathize with somebody in my view, means to be willing to be with them in their struggle and await, await instruction. You know, there are no shortage of, of resources and guides to action steps you can take in terms of demanding justice and reforming our criminal justice system and you know the, the legal system, the, the criminal justice system, nation state, you know, to demand that they equally protect and provide liber liberties to the people of our country, primarily black people who they have largely failed. You know, to understand that, that the perspective of most black people in America is a perspective that has confronted us over and over and over again with the failure of the social experiment that is America. It's failed to provide decency uh, to people that have, that have played the game as dutifully as possible and at every turn been shown that it is rigged against them. One of the reasons that I think so many of us have connected to the yoga practice is because we recognize that our world and our, our political systems, our social systems and, and structures do not adequately provide us with the nourishment that our souls and our hearts need to feel most empowered. And thank God for these practices. Now is not a time to turn away from them because they are one of the few places that we can encourage that deep listening, both to ourselves and to others, the processing of somatic experience that can hopefully leverage us into taking more clear action. Thank God for humans like, like Rachel and, and you know, other leaders in the community that are providing space and nourishment and conversation and somatic processing and healing on an individual level that we can share that with the collective because that does not come from our elected officials and leaders i don't have a a solution for everybody in terms of what we all do right now to solve these larger systemic issues but i will say that systemic issues require systemic solutions and we are all part of that my hope is that that we can look at the issue that is right in front of us, but to examine more thoroughly the mechanisms at play that have led to that. And those aren't, in my view, white and black issues. Those are human issues. Those are humanitarian issues. Those are issues that deal with the priorities that we hold as individuals um, and what we are willing to do to achieve those priorities. So if the system cannot reform itself from within, 
we have to reform ourselves individually, which is what we're doing right now in listening and feeling and processing and educating ourselves. And as we come to these conclusions, you know, we will need to demand more of our leadership and demand more um, of ourselves in the pursuit of establishing an equanimous, <laughs> uh, fair, democratic society for the people that live here. I don't know if that will get uglier before it gets prettier, or you know, if it will create more discord before it creates more harmony. I do know that destruction often is the force that precedes creation. It is out of the mud that the lotus flower blooms. And it is out of our pain and our despair that clarity is born often. So I, I thank you guys for the opportunity to share. This is what's on my heart right now. My, my aim in this is not necessarily to provide <laughs> upliftment, but to provide honesty. You know, for too long, I think our yoga practices have been a, for, for many, a means to turn away from or to bypass or to distract or to escape. And right now, I more than ever, I think these practices that we engage in ought to be an opportunity for us to deepen our capacity to perceive, to listen, to sense, to feel, uh, to process, to heal, and to, to, to mobilize. So thank you again for your time, for anyone that's, that's interested in, in, in who I am or my, my work or you know, the evolution of the conclusions I'm coming to. I invite you to stay in conversation with me. Thank you to Rachel and, and everybody at Yoga Girl for really demonstrating what, in my view, true leadership and true empathy really looks like. And thank you for being so powerfully human during this time. I love you. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Now we're going to be hearing from Maite Onochie. You can follow her on Instagram at Maite underscore yoga or go to her website, MaiteOnochie.com. Hello, my name is Maite, Maite Onochie. And what an honor to be here and to share with you here for a little bit um, from my heart, how I'm feeling, how I've been feeling this week, considering the current state of affairs in the States, but also in the world. Let me introduce myself for those that don't know me. So my name is Maite. I am a yoga teacher. I am one of the contributors to the Yoga Girl platform. I also trained and studied as a social anthropologist. I then went to specialize in international development, and that led me to work around the world for different organizations, but especially the UN, specifically in early childhood development, in the rights of young children. And, but that, at one point in my life, didn't feel like enough of service. I felt like I needed to do more personal work, and that led me into deeper spiritual practice and my yoga practice and 
Today, I am speaking to you from Costa Rica, where I am about to birth my baby girl, first girl. And yeah, it's making me really, it's making me really envision what type of world she's going to be stepping into as we come towards the end of the pregnancy, and particularly because she will be a mixed race, mixed race at her core. She'll be quarter black West African and a quarter white Spanish, and her father is mixed between European descent, but also possibly indigenous blood. So she will be, like I say, mixed race at her core, and seeing the current state of affairs makes me really... Uh, wonder, envision the world that I would love her to grow up into. And it's definitely a world where there'll be social justice and equal opportunities for all, which is something that clearly we have not fully reached right now. Otherwise, we wouldn't see the current situation and rioting and demonstrations and great upheaval that we're um, seeing in the U.S., but also a world where she will, you know, re- be really a guardian of the earth, really honor the natural, the natural resources, the, the, the water, the earth, the air, the plant kingdom, the animal kingdom. And, and also a world where she will feel fully comfortable in her skin, where she will feel like she can truly live her authentic self and uh, not see any limitations to her dreams and proud of her lineage. So that, in a way, the fact that she's chosen to come at this time, at a time that also we're experiencing a global pandemic with COVID, fills me in some way with hope because I deeply believe in reincarnation and I believe that somehow she's chosen to come at this time. So my heart right now is full of hope and joy and at the same time there's great discomfort. There's, like I feel like many of us are feeling, are feeling right now. I grew up. And the, the, the point that comes to me a lot when I think of her and I want her to feel truly comfortable in her skin is because even though I did not experience the level of racism that I know many of my, many of the population, the black population in the States has and continues to this day, I still had consequences of racism. I grew up, I was born in Nigeria, in West Africa, but at the age of two, my parents decided to move back to Spain. My mom is the white Spanish. My dad is the black African. Even though I didn't experience direct racism, in the sense that I didn't experience, oh, the rains are coming here in Costa Rica. You're probably hearing now a little bit of rainstorm in the background. But yeah, I didn't feel directly, let's say, the hatred of anyone in particular. I wasn't particularly like bullied. I certainly have never experienced police brutality or repression in any way, but there's still, there was something, there was something there. Also, growing up in a predominantly white society that made me in some way feel that I was not enough. You know, for example, the stories that I read from the books that we were were shared, the films, the cartoons, I didn't feel represented. They were predominantly white characters, despite whether they were Spanish or they were from anywhere else in the world. And I feel like this is where, for a lot of us, non-white people has been the experience. It was certainly for me growing up, where in some way there was this underlying message 
that I was not, let's say, yeah, enough, pretty enough. So it, took, it, it was difficult for me to fully accept myself. My hair was too curly and needed taming. Needed to find ways to straighten it constantly. My nose felt too big, or my lips were too chunky. My voice maybe was too rusty. As I became a young woman, my body figure was also, you know, I had wider hips, more African, let's say, bone structure, and that. Yeah, it didn't always make me feel comfortable. It didn't always make me feel beautiful. And uh, I feel like this is, this is a big thing, not being represented in the stories. The stories being very one-sided. Um, there was no diversity, no representation. It was not only until I went to England to study and I came in contact with people from all over the world and... I went to the School of Oriental and African Studies that not only I saw the great diversity of potentiality, but also I became really proud and empowered of my heritage because I started learning more about it, because I started hearing other stories. It was not his story, you know? There's, there's this saying of, well, history, who, who really is telling the story? And it tended to be the white man's story, not even a woman but from a male, white perspective. Yeah, to the point that still even to this day upsets me when people, for example, refer to Africa as if it's one country. You often even hear it in the news. I'm really amazed about how a news article or a spokesperson could refer to different countries and then say, and Africa, you know, completely disregarding there's close to 50 countries in Africa. And for example, in Nigeria, you know, people will ask me, do you speak Nigerian? And I say, how can they, you know, Nigeria is a construct. It's not only, it's only 50 years old country that was, you know, a creation from the British where there's over 240 ethnic groups. Like, how can there be one language? Yeah, obviously English had been the dominating language. And this is not out of malice, it's out of ignorance, but that is part of racism. That is part of racism. Like, yet the whole world knows about the Romans and the Greeks, and we know about the goddesses and the gods from, you know, from different parts of Europe. Even recent history, we know a lot about the Holocaust, but do we know what happened in Rwanda? Do we know what happened in Congo? These are genocides that were equally, equally brutal, severe, unjust, and yet there's so much less coverage so much less that is shared and um, this is this is what I feel is really shaking us right now is that their racism is still so active in the world and particularly yes in the US the US has a very particular history that has led to the situation right now they're still clearly living the effects of slavery and colonialism is still very recent much needs to change I fully understand that, you know, the rage and the upheaval um, because, yeah, the U.S. really needs to reassess their situation right now. They need to acknowledge the level of violence against black people, against indigenous people, against people of brown skin color. And there's been too much complacency. So we are at different levels all feeling really uncomfortable what's happening right now. 
the riots are part of, you know, they're a symptom, they're not the problem. And yet, um, I feel like this is also a time that we're really beginning to, not, not beginning, but it is a time to stay united. And the riots are, I feel they're, they're part of this process, but I really dream and hope and pray that it leads into what really needs to change, what the solutions are to change the great disparities that black people have been and continue to experience. That is not time to be divided. This is a time of unity. And yes, 2020 has really shaken us all, has really come to, to, to shake us all, to make us feel really uncomfortable. And there's something here, I'm not really sure what it is yet, but something that I've been really feeling into is that breath is the constant, like united thread throughout. So with COVID, COVID seems to be a virus that really affects the lungs and there's a lot of, you know, people are being challenged in, in their breath, right? At the core of their breath, at the core of life. Um, only less than a year ago, the Amazon was on fire. The lungs of the earth, it was like the earth could not breathe. And now we have, we have the words. Thankfully, because someone recorded, we've all witnessed the horrible, violent murder of George Floyd, where he continuously said that he couldn't breathe. And it just feels that we're all in this pause right now, where breath is at the core, which is life. And, and without life, you know, there's death. And we're coming towards... Yeah, at times of big death, of, of, of systems are dying. And, and, and racism is one of the complex systems of inequality that needs to die. And we all have a responsibility towards it to change in our day-to-day -day lives with what we can. And this is not just for the people in the U.S. because the racism... Racism is across the board throughout the world in great or less degree. But, um, for example, here I live in Costa Rica, in Central America, and, and, and there's great racism throughout the continent against indigenous people, against mestizo, mixed race. Access to health, to education, there's no social justice, so we need to change. And I really welcome this initiative of giving space and voice to the disenfranchised, to the marginalized, for Rachel to have given up her platform, where she has great impact, but to choose to give the space to other voices that not usually get hurt. And I guess my call is for, for you individually to to do that in your communities, in, in your places of work, in, in your homes. Listen to those that you wouldn't generally listen to. Like, what's their lives like? What are their realities, their stories? And what can you do to be more inclusive, to incorporate them more? My dream for my girl right now is that she comes into a world where she can fully truly be comfortable in her skin, where she can be 
feel safe in her body, where she can truly live her most authentic self and not feel any limitation, any limitation, not need to relink, like, to, to deem any part of who she is. And for black people, that has been the reality for too long of a time. Oh, yes, this is from my heart to you today to really, yes, allow the discomfort, go into it and listen, listen within and listen without, listen within your body and listen to those around you that may be in a more vulnerable, marginalized position. Thank you so, so much. If you want to stay in touch, if you want to know more about my, my life, my work as a doula, as a yoga teacher, as a soon-to-be mom, you can follow me. You can find me on Instagram at maite underscore yoga. Let's continue these conversations. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. And from the bottom of my heart, a huge thank you to our amazing guest hosts this week, Diane Bondi, Rocky Heron, and Maite Onochie. Please follow them on Instagram. You can find Diane at Diane Bondi Yoga Official. Rocky is at Rocky Heron and Maite at Maite underscore yoga. I'll be sharing them on social media as well. So you can find their tags on Instagram as well. Please join me in uplifting black voices, speaking up for change and educating yourself. Thanks again for listening to the show. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of the Yoga Girl podcast. You can find all of them on yogagirl.com, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you normally get your shows. Don't forget to leave a review while you are there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. I'll see you next week. <laughs>